Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. I am an optimist by experience and by nature. But this is a very difficult period. This is the test of, of our whole democratic system. And this is a test of whether our system's checks and balances can and will hold and assert itself. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Box Media Podcast Network. I grew up watching the, the evening news with my dad on the couch, and there were quite a few nights I listened to, to Dan Rather. He was one of those three nightly newscasters. He ran the CBS Evening News as the anchor for 24 years. When people talk about that era, when there were these gatekeepers, when there were only a couple nightly newscasts, you had a, a paper in your town, a couple radio programs to listen to, he was one of those gatekeepers. He saw that era. He lived it. He drove it in many ways, pushed it forward. Uh, he covered the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, the, the vast criminal conspiracy known as Watergate. And, and then his, his role at CBS ended in tough circumstances. He did a report on George W. Bush's service in the National Guard. It was based in part on documents that later came under quite a, a bit of fire about their authenticity. I don't know the, the truth of what happened there. There have been a lot of investigations into this. I looked at them before doing this podcast. I read a bunch of the work on it. Uh, there it remains a, a lot of debate as to whether or not we will ever actually even know whether that story was true or not. But what is not arguable is that it led to a pretty harsh parting with CBS. It included lawsuits, a lot of harsh words on both sides. And then he didn't stop. He has continued to have a really fascinating and in the last couple of years, really profound career. He created the program Dan Rather Reports on HDNet, uh, which he won Emmys for. He's a host of the big interview on Access TV. He's got a Facebook page is now over 2 million people, and that has huge and, and morally really clear commentaries on Donald Trump that now ricochet around the internet. He's become a conscience in an industry that he has served and, and been part of for many years. It's a really fascinating role. And to have seen that change in the media and also to be able to see this White House in the context of having covered so many others, I think is a perspective that is more than needed right now. So it's a real pleasure to have him on the program today. One thing before we jump into this, we, we talk a lot about the Trump White House in this conversation. Of course we do. We talk a lot about how the media is changing, how we've moved from a gatekeeper model to, to a more competitive model, what the incentives are like, how they've changed for him personally. We talk about the American political system and whether we are really in as fractious an era as we think. One thing we do not talk about, and this is a choice I made, is that National Guard report. There have been books written on that, including by, by Dan Rather. There's been movies on it. There are long journalistic investigations into it. If you want to learn about that. There are, are good places to do it. I looked at it and I decided I don't think I could shed much new light on that. And it wasn't really, to be honest, what I was most interested in talking to him about. Uh, but I am very interested in the conversation we had. I think that he is a voice that is, is really worth hearing right now. And, and there is a clarity to what he is saying and how he is viewing this moment and a sort of Dan Rather unleashed quality that, that is really fascinating and, and is worth watching in part as a signal for the era we're in, and in part as a way to keep both measured and aware of the era we're in. So here, without further ado, is Dan Rather. Dan Rather, welcome to the podcast. Well, glad to be with you, Ezra. Thank you very much for it's having me. It's a tremendous pleasure to have you here. So I thought we might begin by talking a bit about the media uh, in a particularly difficult age for the media. How, how do you assess the job journalism is doing in the age of Trump? Well, the basic job of journalism hasn't changed, uh, which is to try to get to the truth or as close to the truth as is humanly possible um, and provide 
citizens with information that they need to know and or will find interesting. Uh, what's changed are the delivery systems and the ethos of the media in many important ways. Everything began to change with uh, the digital divide when sometime in the early 90s. But there'd been another significant change before that with the advent of cable, satellite, and the computerization of the country. So once the competitive arena for journalism exploded with growth, and that was roughly in the period sometime the late 70s into the late 80s, that was when cable television came to the fore, satellite television came to the fore, mobile telephones not nearly as uh, effective as phones we have today, but mobile telephones and computers came to the fore. That really enlarged the competitive arena and made the competitive arena much many more competitors. But at the same time, in terms of national distribution of views, there came the consolidation of those corporations uh, that had true national distribution. So at any rate, the 19, late 1970s, 1980s period was one revolution, if you will, in media in which the competitive arena expanded tremendously. Then we came to the individual divide, uh, the beginning roughly of the Internet in the early 1990s, which again expanded the competitive arena, if you will. And we now, as we find ourselves in the second decade of the 21st century, there are literally millions of places for people to get news or something that builds itself as, quote, news. While all this has been happening, unfortunately, the standards of journalism uh, have taken a hit. The standards have declined quite a bit. And where we find ourselves today is in what I will describe for American journalism, and I think that we, have, we are and have been in crisis for a while, because we're in what the Catholic Church calls an interregnum. I'm not Catholic, but the phrase can be applied here. Interregnum is roughly when the old order is either dead or gone, but a new order is not yet in place. And we've been in this interregnum period, if you will, for quite a little while. And I don't think we'll be out of it until and unless someone can come up with a way to finance uh, such kinds of journalism as first-rate international reporting and deep-digging investigative reporting. Now, I will acknowledge that in the last year and a half or two years, I see some signs that, one, some basic journalists have been stiffening their spine. I think the work the Washington Post and the New York Times have been doing for the last year, year and a half with investigative reporting has been a renewal of really what I call deep-drilling investigative reporting, and that's all to the good. But what we haven't gotten yet is from, no one has come up with a, a really good business model that will finance the kinds of journalism I described before, first-class international reporting, deep-digging investigative reporting. Uh, the old business model is, has fallen, fallen askew, and nobody's come up with a business model uh, that can sustain a highly competitive, first-rate journalism going forward. Well, let me ask you about a couple pieces of this. So I, I love the idea of the interregnum. But one thing that I, I do wonder is whether a new order will emerge or whether the order itself is what the interregnum is taking us away from. That the age in which there was a scarcity of news, a scarcity of outlets, in which there were three, three nightly newscasts, of which you, you of course, uh, anchored one, in which you only had your local or maybe a couple local newspapers. And so it created a uh, limited news environment that, as you say, the, the explosion of competition, I wonder if that fracturing is the new reality and, and will be for a long time. And the reason I ask that is because I think that where you come down on that question has a very different implication for what you believe will happen next. So I think we get better international reporting than we ever have before right now. It's because we can read Le Monde um, or we can read Haaretz or we can read The Guardian. I mean, the, the ability to actually read direct international news is, is amazing. We didn't have that when I was a kid. And on the other hand, it means that you have to go seek it out. And you can't be certain that the places you're going normally or the places you're looking to normally 
uh, will do it. And so it puts so much more work on, on the back of the audience. And the audience isn't always well equipped to do that work. I feel like the old order did a lot of that work for you. And even if it wasn't always great, it was always pretty good. And now it's you can get great, but you can also end up with quite bad. Excellent point. And I'd like to underscore what you touched on, that there is a lot of good journalism being practiced today. But you have to look for it. And today it requires a lot more of the news consumer than in the heyday of the old business model, which you correctly put your finger on, that there's so many places now. Some of them are, are not actually news outlets. They're posing as news outlets. Many of them are, for example, frankly, entertainment programs, posing as news programs and so forth. But you make an excellent point that today it requires so much more of a news consumer to find news that they can depend on and Perhaps as we go forward, as we were discussing the, the fractured nature of, of the old order of, of news, which did have some scarcity of news, as you rightly point out, maybe you had the local newspaper, local radio station, and one or two network channels. It'll require an education, if you will. I'm not so sure that we shouldn't require in about grade seven of our school systems a course in you know, how to consume news how to be an intelligent news consumer, uh, because it may well be, uh, despite my hopes, it may be that we're no one is going to come up with a, a kind of business model that will finance a, a truly worldwide news gathering organization dedicated to the highest ideals of journalism. Something you said earlier that has stuck in my head after you said it was that the, the work of journalism is to find the truth, which of course it is. One challenge to that in this era is that as much as journalists are skeptical and, and expect that politicians will lie, that government agencies will mislead, we have not for some time seen a White House that is as untrustworthy as this one, where the press secretaries uh, have complete, they have completely lost credibility already with the press. And yet there's a lot that we need to rely on the government to be basically truthful about. Um, we're, we're speaking in the midst of, you know, an, an escalating level of tensions with North Korea. We're in an age when uh, there's concern that the government is going to censor scientific documents to diminish what we believe about uh, man-made climate change. How do we walk the line between, on the one hand, having to rely to some degree on government agencies to have some foundation for the events uh, that, that they create versus recognizing that, that we're in an age when that foundation is perhaps less trustworthy than it has been in modern memory? Well, I was just the following. And again, it's something I think about quite often because this is a salient point you're raising here. And when we talked about in news, we need better educated consumers and consumers of news, watchers of television, people go to the internet, newspapers, radio. First thing is to look up the words skepticism and cynicism. So you know the difference between skepticism and cynicism. Now, we need a, a news-consuming public that keeps a high degree of skepticism but never slides into cynicism. And as we move forward into this new uncharted cosmos of, of news, delivery of news, whatever it is to be, if we have people who are seeking news say to themselves, well, I'm going to bring skepticism to nearly everything I hear, but I'm not going to engage in cynicism, that'll be a start. How, when you think about this White House, what do you think of as the consequences of having a president who seems to not actually care if he's truthful? And I mean this in a very specific way. Donald Trump is by no means the first president who has lied. Uh, many presidents have lied. But he's the first I can remember who has a relationship with the truth that is indifferent. A lot of liars, they lie for a purpose. He just, in my estimation of him at this point, doesn't really care if he's being truthful or not. He says what pops into his head. He's not careful with it. it, it it's something unusual. 
What are the consequences of having that in the highest office in the land? Well, that depends on us, which is to say it depends on we, the people of the United States. Uh, I agree with your assessment of this president and his presidency so far. True, we've had politicians of all descriptions, and we've had presidents before uh, who would tell lies. But, uh, and I've tried to research this out as best I can. As you know, I'm a former White House correspondent, so I know a few things about the American presidency. And I mean that in the most uh, humble way, that uh, I'm not a deep presidential scholar. But here's the point. Almost every president, and without exception, every president who's been effective uh, as a president, has understood that it's imperative in our system that there be a high degree of communicable trust between the leadership and the led. Therefore, in all previous presidencies, I think without exception, no president previous to this one took the attitude that he could just tell one lie after another, lie without purpose. You take the point, they lied with a purpose to increase their credibility with, with the lead and to to build and to maintain what I've called this high degree of communicable trust. Uh, President Trump, unfortunately, doesn't understand that, or if he does understand it, which I don't think he does, uh, has cast it aside. And this has created a tremendous chasm between the leadership and the lead. And I'm not, not just referring to polls, Pick a number and pick a poll, if you will. President Trump's solid base, which we hear a lot about these days, is, depending on the poll and whom you believe, you know, somewhere between maybe 25 and 33, 35% of the population. Most of the people in the country, even many of those who voted for President Trump and are pulling for Trump, President Trump, simply do not believe uh, what he says and don't believe what's coming out of the White House. If two things happen, there'll be consequences of this, but we'll get through it and come out the other end. But in order to do that, two things have to happen. One, the public has to keep, keep and develop what I would call this high degree of skepticism about things that are said. And secondly, the institutions that are supposed to serve as check and balances uh, against executive uh, branch power have to be sustained and supported. I worry, and I'll tell you frankly, I worry that these institutions, which would include, of course, the courts, the judicial branch, Congress, and the press, these are all supposed to be part of the system of checks and balances. If these institutions are in some ways more fragile than many Americans realize, they're going to need public support they're going to need people of, of honor and with the highest sense of duty uh, to carry out their responsibilities in those institutions. But you know, Israel, I, I am an optimist by experience and, and by nature. And this is, is a very difficult period. This is the test of, of our whole democratic system. You know, we're a constitutional republic based on the principles of freedom and democracy. And this is a test of whether our system's checks and balances uh, can and will hold and assert itself. Let me ask you about the crisis of trust, not between the public and Donald Trump, but between that 25 to 33 percent of, of the Trump base and the media itself. One of the binds the media is in is that covering a chaotic and often untrustworthy White House, honestly, is to cover it negatively. Um, Trump is unusual, and the tone of the coverage he merits is also unusual. Uh, I, I think, to be honest, it requires sometimes saying this is just false, and the way this is being run is, is is genuinely dangerous. On the other hand, when you do that, the base that is Trump's, and while it may be a minority of the country, it's still a substantial number of people, they see that and they see bias, they see fake news, and they lose trust not in Donald Trump, but in you. And so th there is this 
dynamic emergent. And, and I think the Trump White House has been very savvy about it. They've understood, and Steve Bannon has said, that the media is the opposition party. And that if they're not going to be truthful, then what they need to do is delegitimize the media that says they're not truthful. And so they have worked very hard to sort of say that all of the media is on this other side, you know, NBC, the New York Times, Washington Post, ABC, CBS, and then them and a couple of highly allied outlets are, are on their side. What is the media's responsibility to Donald Trump's base? And how should the media manage that bind they're being put in? Well, let's take that in two parts. The first part, what does the media need to do during the era of Donald Trump? And by the way, Israel, and I say this with a smile, I prefer the word press to the word media. I recognize that that runs the risk of uh, tagging me as yesterday's man. But, uh, you know, the First Amendment to the Constitution on the Bill of Rights uh, doesn't talk about the freedom of the media. It talks about the freedom of the press. Uh, but I won't argue, but the media's job is is to do what its basic responsibility is in a society such as ours, which is to find out what people in power don't want the people in general, the population to know, that the population needs to know. That's news. And to make it clear to the public in every way that we possibly can uh, that that's that's our historic role in the country. That's why many of us got into the business. And having the public understand what it is that we're trying to do, I think will help some. I don't want to underestimate the size of this problem, that we in the, in the press, in the media, we have a problem. We have our own credibility problem. Part of that, no small part of that, is we're under a particularly ferocious attack now from the most powerful office in, in the country. But also, uh, you know, we make our mistakes. I've certainly made mine and have the scars to show for it. Some of them still open wounds, some of them self-inflicted wounds. So one, to do whatever we can to have the public understand that news is not an exact science. It's a, it's a kind of crude art. No one can do it perfectly. But with that understood and try as best we can to make the public understand that we know that. It is, folks, what we are trying to do, we'll do it imperfectly, is to ask questions, knock on doors and say what's going on in there, and try to find out what it is that somebody somewhere, particularly people in power, don't want the public to know and, and bring it out into the light. And to constantly be putting forward some version of the old line uh, that uh, daylight uh, is, is the best anecdote to bacteria. And so sunlight, the kind of sunlight the press can, sh can show on the problem and say, folks, this is what they're telling you, those in power. This is what those in power want you to believe. But here's what we have found out is actually going on inside. And to keep a, I wouldn't say a drumbeat, but constantly try to explain to the public and remind the public that one definition of news is that which people in power don't want you to know, that you need to know, is news. Nearly everything else is either propaganda or advertising. Now, in terms of the Trump base, uh, the press, there are people whom you're never going to be able to convince. There are people who, for their own personal or partisan political or deeply felt ideological reasons, are always going to buy into the press. But again, I come back to, you know, Ezra, that you and I have been at this a while. In my experience with the public, is that the public at large, whether you're going through a Democratic administration or a, or a Republican administration, the public at large, at any given moment, it may seem that they don't understand. But over time, and by and large, I think the public does understand what it is we're trying to do. And what I'm suggesting here is we keep reminding them. And the best reminder of the value of a free press is doing first-class reporting, doing it 
but deep digging investigative reporting and doing quality journalism of integrity is, is the best defense against the kind of attacks. And these are unprecedented attacks uh, that the Trump administration is specializing in. Let me ask you a bit about the definition of news, which, which I, I like the one you had there, but there's another piece of it that I think is interesting and that I stress out about a lot. So among my among the hats I wear, I'm editor-in-chief in of Vox and responsible for setting at least some of our coverage priorities. And I worked in newsrooms where the line used to circulate, the first three letters of news are, are N-E-W, right? The news is what is new. Uh, sometimes it's what the powerful don't want you to know, but a lot of it is just what's new. <laughs> And, you know, the latest release from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, right? Nobody doesn't want you to know that, but but it is news. It just came out. What has seemed to me to happen, particularly has always been happening, but is really accelerated in the Trump era, is new things and unusual new things, right? The president sending out unusual tweets, the press secretary saying something bizarre, Anthony Scaramucci giving an insane interview. <laughs> it has begun to overwhelm the channel. And there's a lot in the world that is important on any given day, but is not new. Opioid deaths uh, are not always new. Uh, there is a tremendous amount in the economy, a tremendous amount of pain in the economy that is not new, that does not change between Monday and Tuesday or Tuesday and Wednesday. And one thing that I worry about is that we are giving so much attention to what just happened, particularly in politics, although it's true in other areas of the, the press too, that we are losing sight of what is a little bit more enduring and a little bit more important. And that one effect that Trump is having, not even meaning to have, but he is really playing into the press's obsession with a thing that just happened. And things like Twitter are only making that tendency worse. And so the work that we sometimes have to do on a longer time frame to try to approach and reapproach issues and problems in the world that aren't changing but also aren't going away is being lost. How how do how do you get around that? How do you manage both the incoming and the enduring? Well, uh, the straight answer, Ezra, is I wish I knew. And I don't mean that as a smart aleck answer. Uh, that when I was anchor and managing editor of the CBS Evening News for 24 years, we we struggle with this on a daily basis, and this goes back. Uh, I first came came into that job in the early 1980s. You know, the the, the constant struggle and trying to balance. Well, okay, what's important? The, the best news story, an important news story that was really interesting. But we struggled with how much of the newscast to give the kind of news that was. I think you described it perhaps older and enduring or the kind of thing that required some deep thought as opposed to the latest celebrity news. Also news that you can use was always, uh, there's always somebody around to say, you know, people like to have news they can use. This is the constant struggle of, of any news organization. And it, it's a, a constant struggle within every journalist. So I think in the answer to your question is that, again, it, it's trying to explain to the public what the decision-making process is. I do agree with your uh, overall thesis that, one, the Trump administration takes great care, and Trump himself has proved to be masterful with this, of that is controlling every news cycle. It's not by accident that he sends out his tweets very often very early in the morning because that gives him the best chance to set the news narrative, at least the lead news narrative for the day. And second, it is true that we give a, a, lot, of a lot of attention to things that are, quote, new, such as the phrase breaking news has become almost uh, meaningless these days because some television channels put up breaking news all day and all night, every day, seven days a week. Uh, and we do that at the expense of some things that are important, you mentioned labor statistics or what's happening in Nigeria or uh, some other dateline long since forgotten, it, it's part of the daily challenge of journalism. And I don't think the public has thought a lot about this. It's hard to generalize about the public, but I don't think the news-consuming public has thought a lot about this. 
if you will, uh, which all the more reason why people such as ourselves need to keep trying to explain what it is we do, why we do it, and how we do it. I want to move us to the political era in which we, in which we live. You've covered civil rights movement, the, the Vietnam War, the assassination of JFK, Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. There is this belief that we live in a uniquely politically fractious time, that, that Americans are bitterly divided in a way they haven't been before, that you know, I, I see people routinely talk about the question of whether this is even still a stable political system. And yet sometimes I, I look at us historically and actually it seems like not a very fractious period at all. We had a strange election result, but we're not for the most part at war in the streets. I'm curious where you come down in that debate. Does America feel more broken than it has at other times or is it just a weird political moment in a relatively quiet country? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question in particular. Uh, Eric, for one thing, I'm trying to write something on this subject now. I have a book coming out in November, but the title of the book is What Unites Us. And when we're talking about being consumed, both journalists and the public, with what is, quote, new, there is a tendency to think, gosh, this is the worst period that we've ever had in the country, certainly the worst in terms of political division and tribalism uh, is uh, beginning to dominate over uh, nationalism, never mind patriotism. But this is where trying to give context and perspective, something which is always difficult to do, whether one is dealing with a, a half-hour evening newscast, a newspaper, or in your case, a, a, an Internet site, to put things into some context and some perspective. Putting this question of how divided are we, is this really the worst time in the country, putting that into some context and give it some perspective, you know, we can remind ourselves that the Civil War, roughly 1860, 1864, 5, the country was deeply, deeply divided, more deeply than uh, it has been at any time since, and I would argue perhaps any time before with the possible exception of the Revolutionary War. And Again, during the 1960s, that I became a network news co network news correspondent in the early 1960s, and the country was uh, was deeply divided in the 1960s. Not just over the Vietnam War; it was divided over that, but it was divided culturally, uh, divided over what the what the mores of the country should be, and it and it was divided uh, politically. So, putting things in some, trying to give them perspective, putting them into context would require that we think about this present period with those things in mind. On the other hand, and this is not to say it's equally balanced, on the other hand, there needs to be a recognition that we've never had uh, in the history of the country any presidency get off to such a chaotic, even dysfunctional start. Uh, and having said before that we've never had a president who told lie after lie, and I use that word measured lie. We're talking about things that are demonstrably untrue and that he knew to be untrue. And, you know, besides the outright right lies, there's a plethora of sophistry and uh, misstatements, but we've never had, so it is new. We, This presidency is represents something new. We've never had anybody in the office who told this many lies and who got off to such, as I say, a chaotic, uh, dysfunctional start, compounded uh, by the fact that we've never had, I wouldn't say never, but we have seldom had a presidency who had almost no legislative accomplishments, almost zero legislative accomplishments, and then further complicated by uh, a, a deep criminal investigation you could say, well, yes, well, President Nixon had this, the whole Watergate, widespread criminal conspiracy that we call for shorthand Watergate. However, the Watergate uh, disgrace started, uh, really uh, began to take traction in Richard Nixon's second term, not in the first six months of your presidency. So if you put all that together with the chaos, the dysfunction of the administration of the office of the presidency, the lack of any legislative achievement, plus 
having a, a criminal investigation which may, may reach into the office of the presidency itself and has already reached into some of the principal advisors of the, of the president during the campaign, uh, this is new. And that also needs to be part of the context and perspective in which we gauge the president's age. I'd like to try a hypothesis out on you. So when I look in sort of 20th century political history, I, as my question implied, see extended periods where the country was much more torn apart in fundamental ways than it is today. But I also see a political system that for a lot of reasons, some of them good and some of them bad, was much more capable of finding compromise, of finding consensus, and of finding calm. Uh, Even if when you talk about Watergate, you did at that point have a Republican Party that at a certain point cooperated with Democrats in a pretty reasonable, serious investigation of the president and his associates' crimes. When you think of the civil rights era, you had a Republican Party that was, uh, that at least big parts of it were very constructively engaged, at least under Lyndon Johnson, in trying to pass that legislation. I don't want to in any way diminish problems, failures, and cruelty that existed in our political system because it clearly did. But I think sometimes, or I worry, that what if you had transposed today's political system with its level of partisanship, with its level of fracture, with its inability to get really anything big done, and you put it into those more fractious, dangerous times? What if we had had this political system and this kind of partisan divide in Congress during Watergate? What if we had had it during the civil rights era, during Vietnam? And and that's where things feel a little scarier to me. Uh, With both this presidency and this era in Congress, it feels lucky that we have not had a crisis or war on the scale of those that we faced over and over in the 20th century. But we will, I think. I hope not, but I think we will. And I worry that we're not going to be in a place to deal with it. Well, how timely is this conversation? A couple of points. Uh, And I do think uh, I agree with you. There's cause for worry uh, and cause for considerable worry. I do have in mind that I can't remember whether it was John Adams or James Madison who said that fear is not in the American character. So we shouldn't succumb to fear, but that's different than being deeply concerned. And I think you're right, and I think we'd be right to be deeply concerned about the present situation for among other reasons, and I want to take two of the examples that you pointed out. There's the time of the this widespread criminal conspiracy led by the president of the United States himself called Watergate. You had a Republican president and a Democratic Congress. And in the time of the unfortunate period of Bill Clinton and what led to his impeachment, at that time you had a Democratic president and a Republican Congress. So my point here is that the check and balances that we spoke of earlier and having a balance of power in government helps us get through some of the worst periods. In this particular instance, the one party not only has control of the White House, the Congress, and in effect the Supreme Court, but it controls overwhelmingly governors. The majority of state governors are Republican. The majority of state legislatures are Republican. So to your point that, well, you know, in the past, we've been able to get through because we had leaders who understood that you have to negotiate, that part of the foundation of our democratic system is compromise. Not everybody who's in the majority gets everything they want all the time. So, in sum, this is a particularly troublesome and concerning period because we don't have a counterbalance to the power that President Trump represents. Now, in parentheses of that, of course, is the hope is even members of his own party will serve as a balance against his worst excesses. And we have seen some indications of that, uh, in, in some indications of it in recent weeks. You know, something you said there keys into something I've been thinking about a lot recently. You're talking about the extent of one-party rule in the country right now. 
And I think that if you didn't know politics that well, or even you do know it reasonably well, you might listen to that and say, wow, the Republican Party, it's remarkable how much more popular it is in the Democratic Party to, to have achieved all that power. And yet we're in this strange system where of the last five presidential elections, fully 40% of them were won by the person who won fewer votes. We know that the geography of the House of Representatives means that for Democrats to take it back, they probably need to win by seven or eight percentage points, not by one or not even by one vote. Um, the Senate also has a, a small state bias. Uh, the fact that Democrats are increasingly clustered in, in urban centers and Republicans are more in suburban and rural areas has given a tremendous uh, tilt towards Republicans at the congressional level. State level has that same small state versus big state and urban state bias. America believes itself to be a democracy. I mean, our, our, our system is more complicated than that, but our, our national story is a democratic one, a small d democratic one. But are we a democracy at this point? Well, I think the answer to that is a resounding yes. Uh, I think we are a democracy at this, at this time. Having said that, I do think, and again, I can't give you the citation of this quote, but it's not original with me, we have a democracy if we can keep it. And there are, have been some increasing signs in the last quarter of a century, not just confined to this last election, uh, that we, we need to work a little harder, think a little harder and better about how to keep that democracy. Uh, as I mentioned before, it, it's uh, democracy is shorthand for a constitutional republic based on the principles of representative democracy and, and freedom. I know a, a pure, sheer democracy would be you take a vote on everything and you have majority rule. This comes back to my being uh, optimistic uh, about the country, Ezra, that we've got problems. We've got tremendous problems, including this problem of uh, credibility of the leadership and uh, whether if something really dire happened, if we got into massive attack, God forbid, even nuclear attack, could, would the country be held together under this present leadership? I think the answer to that is probably yes, despite all the problems that we have and all the uh, deepening problems represented by the early stages of this presidency. But we can't take it for granted. And I, I would hope that conversations such as this would be taking place all around the country of, well, okay, we we have a democracy, but we need to question, is it really a democracy? And if rather is right, and well, yes, it's a democracy, but we have to, if we can keep it, then how do we keep it? Those are the, are the central questions. And ideally, and obviously we're not dealing with an ideal situation, but these are the kinds of discussions that a president who was a true leader would be encouraging, uh, that a Washington or a Jefferson or a James Madison or Lincoln or Theodore Roosevelt, a Ronald Reagan or a Dwight Eisenhower would arguably be trying to encourage the public to have, but that's not what we have at the moment. Should we be surprised by the Trump administration or in a country with the racial history that our country has, should we have expected a backlash president after the first African-American occupant of the White House? Again, that's a very good question. And I think the answer is yes, that we probably should have. Uh, but very few uh, people that I know of uh, did. And I myself did not think of it in those terms. I, I didn't predict that Donald Trump would win. But I did say from the beginning he needs to be taken seriously and that he could win. But set that aside, so much of what happened during the Obama administration in terms of a building resentment, there were a lot of causes for that resentment, uh, but it's disingenuous and not helpful to fail to recognize that a lot of that was based on race. And so a long-winded way of answering your question, I do think that, yes, it probably should have been expected a backlash to the eight years of the Obama administration. So I think there's been a, a, a disagreement in politics as to whether 
the seeds of Trumpism were created by the institutional Republican Party, by people like Mitch McConnell saying, you know, the top priority is making Barack Obama one-term president, by the birther movement being indulged, by, you know, there's certainly a, in the post-civil rights era, uh, in the post-Goldwater era, uh, certainly significant strains of, let's say, racial resentment that have been prominent inside the Republican Party. Then there's another argument that this reflected almost a takeover of the Republican Party, that it was an outside, almost independent force that barreled into the Republican primary, overwhelmed an unsuspecting establishment, and found and held power. Which view do you think gets closer to the truth? I think the first is closer to the truth, but there's there's something in the other. It's, it's a mix, but uh, no question that the seeds of Trumpism uh, and the seeds of the Trump victory were sown over a long period of time uh, by the Republican Party, which uh, its leadership decided to make a party of uh, obstinate obstructionism. So if I have to pick one of the two, it's the former. It's that. But it was aided in no small part and fueled uh, and helped along in no small part by, by other factors the demography of the country, the demographics of the country have changed so uh, dramatically since the passage of uh, the new immigration laws in the mid-1960s. And the, the sense of, uh, wait a minute, the whole country is changing. We're, n- we're no longer what we were. Can't be attributed entirely to these seeds uh, sown by the Republican leadership in fairly recent years. Then, then uh, oh, business of the world is changing. Uh, the economic environment has become much more global. All of these things fueled into it. And again, I want to come back to race. Part of what the country is having to adjust to is the sense of, of many people who are white, who felt privileged, if you will. They see many of the aspects of that privilege melting away. And that's been going on for a long time and building for a long time. So there's a mix here, but certainly the Republican leadership uh, of the last, uh, particularly the last 10, 15 years, bears a heavy responsibility for the rise of Trump, uh, for doing, as you pointed out, they, they obstructed everything and planted the seeds for a kind of backlash, which resulted in, uh, was a big part of Donald Trump being elected. You made a, an important point there, I think, about the the speed with which America's demographics have changed in the past four or five decades. Uh, I've had before on this show a political scientist named Yasha Monk, who's a scholar of comparative democracies. And something he said that has stuck with me is that there are not other examples of long-running pluralistic, highly multi-ethnic democracies, that this is actually a pretty new experiment to try to have a political system like this one in a society that is not homogenous in the way that some of the Nordic countries are, some of the, some of the European countries traditionally have been. Do you think that America needs to be more cautious about its movement into multiculturalism. Do you think that this poses a threat to the American experiment uh, beyond what America can handle in the coming decades? Well, I certainly think that this is something that should be discussed uh, publicly. Uh, The country and local leadership should take a part in fostering discussions. This question of, are we moving too fast? Uh, Do we need to be more cautious as we move deeper and deeper into multiculturalism. I think there's a almost automatic response, uh, a not very well thought through response, if I may say so, from many people who would say immediately, by all means, we need to be more cautious about the move into multiculturalism. But I don't think it's quite that simple. I do think that it's worth discussing. I mean, there are some things that I would say, look, a justice system, that is much fairer when it comes to race. Uh, the need for that, I don't think, is debatable. I think we need it. But this is something that can be debated. Ezra, once again, you get to the, to, the, to the core of something, 
that I don't find is taught as much in schools as it once was, uh, and certainly not taught in schools as much as it needs to be taught, and that is this. That, you know, we're still, still a fairly young country. Considering the great sweep of history, we're, you know, we're over 200 years old, but still a young country. And since our very beginning, we've been engaged in an experiment which had never been tried before. No people in the history of the planet had ever tried to do what uh, America set out to do, what the United States set out to do from its very beginning, and that is to prove that a, a multiracial, multireligious, multiethnic society could be united on principal values enough and long enough to rule itself. Now, that experiment was born with the victory of the American Revolution. And we're still an experimental nation, still trying to prove that we can do that. So far, pretty good. But going forward, as we accelerate the pace of, of changing demographic society, demographics changing on race, uh, religion, ethnicity, a whole list of things. The question is, well, can we continue to hold ourselves together? Can we stay united? Is a question worth a lot of discussion. What is your, you've said a couple times in this discussion that you are an optimist. What is your optimistic hope for the Trump administration? If in 2020, we're looking back and, and let's keep things like impeachment off the table for the moment, because I think those are more extreme questions. What would be a good outcome here, what, and, and a realistic good outcome here? Well, a good outcome for the Trump administration, frankly, is hard to imagine. But uh, your question is a fair one. If the country can continue the kind of economic growth, which is not sensational, but has been steady and getting steadily better for the last year and a half, two years, if we can continue to have at least a modicum of economic health, that's going to help a lot whatever President Trump personally does and whatever he and his administration do. Now, beyond that, and I'll, I'm pausing here because I, I don't want this to come across as flip, a good outcome would be for him to shut down the tweets and shut up with the offhand remarks and just ad-libbing things, whatever comes to his mind, bringing some discipline to his administration. A good, a, a good outcome would be if President Trump took a personal assessment and wrote down and reminded himself what hasn't worked and stopped doing it, that would be a good outcome for the Trump administration. Another good outcome would be for those who have uh, high responsibility in our institutions, which I mentioned earlier, the courts, uh, the Congress, uh, the, pr the press, to put the country first rather than, in the case of politicians, the, the, their politics first, and serve as a, a constant steady, reliable counterbalance to excesses of the president, that would be a good outcome of the Trump administration. Let me say, Ezra, you didn't ask, but I, I find a lot of people who just take it for granted, they just take it as a given, that if President Trump survives his first term, that he'd be a one-term president. I'd like to just gently suggest that that's not a given. That won't necessarily be true. And then there are those people, I'd say a smaller number, uh, but those uh, quite a few people who think there's no way he's going to finish his first term, that he'll either be uh, impeached or he'll resign, he'll be forced out in some ways. Well, certainly true that could happen, but on the basis of what we know, exactly know up to and including now, that wouldn't be the way to bet it, in my opinion. So I want to talk a bit about your personal path in, in media over the last couple of years. And 
We, we spoke at the beginning about the way we've moved from a, an era, let's say, of gatekeepers into an era of competition and profusion of outlets. And I think that your space in this is interesting because you were one of those gatekeepers. You did anchor one of those three big nightly newscasts, and then you left CBS under difficult circumstances. But since then, you've become a, a force on Facebook. You've been on some of these cable networks we discussed. You're on Sirius Radio all these new ways into the media and all these new ways to reach an audience, you've found yourself at the forefront of as well. I'm curious how you think about the benefits of the gatekeeper model that fostered your career for many years versus the benefits of the more open competitive model that have created the the current career that you have now. Well, you know, I consider myself very fortunate, as, as you may know. I started in print as a as a print journalist, and because I was an atrocious speller, a tremendous weakness to have in print. I wandered into radio, and I went through appeared in radio, and then went through the television era. And as you rightly point out, uh, for the last what eleven years or so, uh, it's been a combination of uh, working in mostly satellite and cable television, but a good deal and increasing amounts of my time spent on the internet with, number one, my own Facebook page, and number two, the news site, which uh, I operate called News and Guts. In answer to your question about, you know, comparing the two roles, the gatekeeper role, which would be the role of uh, a network anchor, uh, as opposed to what it is I do now, it's hard for me to say that I get more satisfaction out of one over the other. I don't, I don't want to duck the question at all, but let's face it, as pretty much a workaday reporter, I've, I've been tremendously lucky and, as I'm fond of saying, mightily blessed to have had as many roles as I've had in journalism. And make no mistake about it that uh, when I was in what you call the gatekeeper role, I enjoyed it. Uh, I've, I found it satisfying work, meaningful work, certainly had a feeling it was work that mattered. You know, if you're in journalism, I think if you're in almost anything, but certainly in journalism, you want to do work that counts, work that matters. And I, I did have a sense of that, uh, a very strong sense of that, including I felt it was a trust. Uh, and I tried to meet the responsibilities of that trust. Others will have to uh, decide how well or how poorly I did it. But I enjoyed that. I found it satisfying and, and meaningful to me. Uh, it's been slower to come, if you will, in the new role, social media, Facebook, and filing on the Internet for news and guts. In doing what I'm doing now, there is a sense of liberation. I don't answer to anyone other than myself, whereas in the former gatekeeper role, if you will, uh, it was a very collaborative process and one in which I did have superiors. And so moving into the, 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 the social media phase, there's been a, a sense of, of, of freedom. Uh, I used the word liberation before. But with, with that, to, to be candid with you, it's also a little scarier in that there's really no safety net. One can argue that, well, when you were at CBS News, it wasn't much of a safety net. That's not much true. That There was always a sense if you belonged to a, a large news organization and had the responsibility of a, a quote, gatekeeper of the news, that there are others who can serve as a check and balance on you. Whereas what I do now, uh, particularly on Facebook, I don't put anything on Facebook that hasn't gone through at least one editor, that is to say someone else who takes a look at it for accuracy and, yes, fairness. But there is this sense of, uh, to use the cliche, operating without a net, which, while on the one hand I feel much freer than ever before to say what I honestly think and analyze and even commentate as I please, there is that freedom but there's also that sense of, well, don't look down because there's, there's, no, there's no net. If you, make a, if you make a big mistake, you'll pay uh, the ultimate price for it. And uh, part of this may be, I don't like to talk about age, Ezra, but I, I'd have to confess that part of this may be also a benefit of age, if you will, 
that I used to care a lot more about what people thought. It's fair to say I may have worried too much about, well, if we do, do this story this way, you know, what will my peers think? What will the public think? While some of that is still in me, a lot in me now just says, look, at this age and stage of my career, do your best and about what others think, just don't give a damn. Let me ask you about the incentives of of the two roles. So when you were at the CBS Evening News and you're speaking to that broad swath of the country, on the one hand, there's, you know, the famous Walter Cronkite and that's how it is. But on the other, to, to retain that position, as you say, it, it's difficult to tell stories in a certain way. You have to worry about alienating the audience. You were in the, that you think that when you were pushed out of CBS News, it was in part because Viacom had decided that your presence would make it hard for them to continue having a relationship with the Bush administration. On Facebook, by contrast, you and, and everybody else is rewarded sometimes for going more to the side, for writing something that is more passionate, for denouncing Trump in more aggressive terms. Uh, you know, you, you look and the Facebook shares go way, way up when something is particularly strong and rousing, whereas if it's just a sort of middle of the road, you know, here's how things are today and they're mostly all right, uh, no no real need to worry, it's not going to get 100,000 shares. How do you think about those incentives and, and do you think that one was better than the other? That pauses. I wanted to think about that a minute, that I try hard uh, and most days in most ways I succeed. I try hard not to think about, well, how many hits is this going to get? How many likes is this going to get? But it'd be less than truthful to say that I don't think about some of the time because there's that old reporter's adage, you know, the best story in the world is not worth a hoot unless you can get it out. And uh, the best written piece for Facebook is not any good unless you have people read it. So there's this tug within yourself of saying, well, don't be thinking about whether people are going to like it or not and whether it's going to get shared and liked. Just do what you think is right and, and do it. But some of the time it is, well, you know, if you want to stay relevant, uh, if you want to be part of the ongoing conversation, you need an audience. I am quite honestly staggered, and I use that word measuredly. Uh, I'm st- uh, I was in the beginning, and I remain staggered by the size of, of, of the audience on the Internet for some pieces. Uh, that, uh, the, you know, the first time we had a Facebook that was seen by, at least seen by, what, I don't know, maybe 20 million people, even by network news standards, that's a lot of folks. I'm not suggesting we get that very often, but fairly regularly you get two to five million people. There is a responsibility that goes with that. Now, how that compares with the evening news, I would say the biggest difference, well, certainly a big difference, Ezra, is that on the Internet there is a sense of community. That is, you get instantaneous feedback. I, I can't and I don't read all of the comments, but I try to get a flavor of what the comments are after everything. So there's a sense of a, a two-way conversation uh, with social media that one did not have, uh, and I, I think it's still true you don't have, if you're anchoring a network news broadcast. For example, in the heyday of network newscasts, at least in my part of it, was 1980s and 90s, you'd have, you did have some people occasionally telephone Sometimes if you did something controversial, maybe hundreds would telephone, but some telephone calls and some people would write a letter. But there wasn't a sense of that you you were getting a conversation started with the community. There is some sense of that with social media, and it's one of the advantages of social media. So I think that's probably a good, a good place to let you get back to your day. So let me end on the question we always end on at this podcast, which is, what are three books you've read that, that you care about that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Well, I would say uh, Man's Search for Meaning by uh, Frankel. Uh, I consider one of the best books of the last third of the 20th century and has, has meant a great deal to me. I, I recently read the book and I could recommend it to almost anybody. It's one of the most widely published books in the in the world. It's a tough read, but a very important read. So Man's Search for Meaning would be one of those books. 
Carmack McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses, which was not his first novel. The novel that made him was called Blood Meridian, but Carmack McCarthy's always All the Pretty Horses, maybe because um, I'm a Texan by birth and by choice. Uh, uh, It's one of those, uh, is a novel, a piece of fiction, that for whatever reason is really stuck to me and I could recommend to anyone. I haven't mentioned the, the Bible, let's set that aside, that would want to get too deeply into it, but I was raised by a grandmother who one of her two books was the Bible, the other was a Sears Roebuck catalog, uh, who read a, a lot from the Bible to me, and the Bible has always meant a great deal to me. I'm trying to think of a more recent book because All the Pretty Horses were probably published sometime in the 1980s, and uh, Frankel's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, was published uh, sometime around mid-century, maybe a little later than that. I do t- tend to read and reread classics. Uh, as a former police reporter, I, I read a lot of Dostoevsky. Uh, I've recently reread some of that. So that's a flavor of the things that I read. But I, I will say, Ezra, that I, you know, I'm usually reading two or three books at a time and dip into one and then another. I wouldn't say that I'm a voracious reader, but I, I try to read as much as I can, which one of the downsides of the Internet era is uh, there's always that temptation to um, look up uh, what's on your email and what you've been texted. And by the time you get through doing that and answering things, the first thing you know, if you don't take care, you haven't had time to read. Yeah, I I feel that one on a very daily basis. Uh, Dan Rather, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Ezra. Thank you to Dan Rather, to all of you for for listening in, to my engineer, Riyad Shawi, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back next week. Mm -hmm.